If you're enjoying Bradbury 100, please check out my other podcast, Science Fiction 101, in which we explore the past, present and future of science fiction. Find it at 101sf.blogspot.com and head over to YouTube to find my Bradbury 101 series, in which I look at Ray's books and movies. This is Bradbury 100, celebrating the centenary year of American writer Ray Bradbury. I'm Phil Nichols of bradburymedia.co.uk. Each week on the podcast, we look at some aspect of Bradbury's life and work and interview somebody who is inspired by Ray. Welcome to the first episode of Bradbury 100. Uh, in today's show, I'll be interviewing someone who worked with Ray and who also organised Ray Bradbury Week in Los Angeles in 2010, and that's the novelist Stephen Paul Laver. That week in 2010 was timed to coincide with Ray's 90th birthday, and now, of course, in 2020, we've reached what would have been Ray's 100th birthday, an ideal time for some more celebration. Except that the pandemic has unfortunately led to some celebrations being cancelled. And that's exactly why I created this podcast, so that we can bring together fans, friends and scholars of Ray while maintaining social distancing. Now before we meet Stephen, let's talk about the thing that most people associate with the name Ray Bradbury. Science fiction. Now here's a funny thing. Ray wrote about a dozen novels, but how many of those were science fiction? At a stretch, I would say two. He also published 30 or so short story collections, but only one of those is science fiction throughout The Illustrated Man. All the rest could be classed as fantasy or horror or autobiographical fiction or just plain old fiction. So why do people call him a science fiction writer? Maybe it's because he started as a science fiction writer. Well, possibly. But his earliest published stories were all over the place in terms of genre. Some science fiction, sure, but a lot more fantasy and horror. And his first book, well, that was Dark Carnival, a collection of weird tales, not science fiction. OK, maybe it's because his best work was science fiction. So... What is that? Uh, Fahrenheit 451? OK, that's quite science fictional, set in the future, some futuristic technologies. But have you ever read The October Country? The October Country is a collection of fantasy and horror stories, and certainly some of Ray's best. It surely contains some of his very, very best short stories. Uh, Skeleton, The Lake, The Emissary, The Small Assassin, The Crowd. I could go on. All right, then maybe people say Ray is a science fiction writer because his best-known work is science fiction. Now, this is more probable, I think. The best-known of his books is surely Fahrenheit 451. In second place, possibly, is The Martian Chronicles, which certainly sounds like it's a work of science fiction. 
Now, at this point, you might be saying, well, who cares? He's just a writer. Let him write what he wants. And I completely agree with that. And, and I think Ray would have agreed too. So why bother debating it? Well, because if you go into a bookshop, uh, you remember bookshops, don't you? If you go into a bookshop, head to the fiction section and look under B, chances are you won't find much Bradbury. But head to the science fiction section, and there he is. Except most of his books, which you will find there, are not science fiction. And you'll sometimes hear that Bradbury himself didn't like being labelled as a science fiction writer. But this isn't entirely true. In many interviews and essays, he was quite happy to be associated with the genre. But there were a couple of things that happened with his early books, which led to some dissatisfaction on Ray's part. His first book from a mainstream publisher was The Martian Chronicles, published by Doubleday in 1950. Now, as I say, The Martian Chronicles sounds like a science fiction book, and the publisher thought so too, so they put a little badge on the book saying Doubleday Science Fiction. And this upset Ray. Because he didn't like science fiction or being called a science fiction writer? No, it was simply that he didn't think this book was science fiction. Now, to understand why, we'll need to consider what science fiction means. And this this is a rabbit hole that you really don't want to go down. Um, among critics and scholars, there are some really convoluted definitions of science fiction. But there are also some simple rules of thumb, and, and one is what I would call the duck theory. If it looks like a duck and quacks like a duck, it's a duck. So if a story has the familiar elements of a science fiction story, uh, let's see, spaceships, robots, time machines, then it's a science fiction story. On this basis, The Martian Chronicles is a science fiction book. It's It's full of spaceships and aliens and uh, even a bit of the old nuclear holocaust. Uh, perhaps I should have given a spoiler alert there. So, what's wrong with Doubleday sticking science fiction on the Martian Chronicles? Well, Ray Bradbury had a more precise way of distinguishing science fiction from pure fantasy. He said, quite simply, that if it could happen, it was science fiction, and if it was impossible, it was fantasy. Now, there are problems with this distinction, but it's not bad at isolating the intent of the book. What Ray was doing, quite consciously, was setting his stories in a romantic vision of Mars, which really derives from the stories of Edgar Rice Burroughs, uh, you know, John Carter of Mars and all that. He didn't care that this was an impossible world because he wasn't trying to show us a possible future. What he was trying to do was retell the story of America. People fleeing from a world they knew in order to explore and exploit a brave new world. And in the process, of course, come into conflict with the natives. The Martian Chronicle shows with great sadness how the invaders from Earth inadvertently bring disease to Mars and wipe out nearly all of the natives. And it shows how the spirit of the natives lives on, uh, permeates the land and, and can never be eradicated. Now for Ray, if you call this science fiction, you're saying that this portrayal of the future is possible. And that's not what he wanted, because he was using an impossible world 
to reflect on American history and American society. Where you will find science fiction that meets Ray's own definition is in The Illustrated Man, the short story collection, where there are cautionary tales about the future, such as The Velt, which is all about a kind of uh, virtual reality or holodeck world. And Ray considered uh, Fahrenheit 451 to be his only science fiction novel. It's set in the future, uh, which is, well, to him, a plausible extrapolation of our current world, and which uses that future to warn us of where we might be headed. Now, if Fahrenheit is Ray's best-known book, and I believe it is, and if it is his best book, which many people would argue it is, then it is reasonable to call Ray a science fiction writer. But... If you're going to introduce someone to Ray Bradbury's fiction, don't tell them he writes science fiction. Tell them he writes all sorts of stuff. Then they won't be disappointed when they pick up excellent non-science fiction, such as The October Country or Something Wicked This Way Comes. I hope that wasn't too much of a rant. If you want more of this sort of discussion, head to my website, bradburymedia.co.uk, where I do this sort of thing all the time. Now it's time to meet my first guest on Bradbury 100, Stephen Paul Laver. He's a novelist who once worked in the field of animation. One of his many film projects brought him to working with Ray, and that was Little Nemo in Slumberland, based on the classic comic strip by Windsor McKay. I'll apologise in advance for some occasional drops in sound quality. Uh, Let's just blame it on the dodgy internet. I'm in England, you see, and Steve is in California. Joining me today is novelist Stephen Paul Laver, author of By the Sea, Journey to Where and Travelling in Space, and a neat little volume called Searching for Ray Bradbury. Steve, welcome to Bradbury 100. Thank you, Phil. I appreciate it. A hundred years of Ray Bradbury, and none of us looks a day over mm, 40. (laughs) Well, speak for yourself. (laughs) Um, Now, you and I have corresponded a bit over the years, but we only ever met the once up until now, and that was during Ray Bradbury Week in 2010, which you organised. Can you tell us something about that week? Well, it was his 90th birthday, obviously, Mm -hmm. and... um, what had happened, I need to backstory it a little bit a year. I think it was uh, 2009, mm-hmm. and um, it was Norman Corwin's 99th birthday. Right. Now, you guys may not have heard of Norman Corwin, but he was a great producer and director of uh, radio drama yeah. in America during the 40s, maybe 30s and 40s, yeah. and went on and was a good friend of Ray's, and it was 90, his 99th birthday. So they put on a staged reading of Ray's radio version of Leviathan 99 right? At, that Norman at 99 directed. Yeah. And in the cast was William Shatner and Walter uh, Koenig or Koenig from uh, Star Trek and yeah. others who I can't remember. I'm so sorry about that. <laughs> but it was a lovely evening. Both Norman and Ray gave speeches. And afterwards, there was a reception. This was at the Writers Guild Theater in uh, Beverly Hills. And afterwards, in the in the big lobby area, there was a reception and everybody was talking. And of course, a lot of people went up to Ray. But there was a moment 
and at this time he was uh, in a wheelchair. Uh, at at the moment, at, for a moment there, he's sitting all alone at a table, and he looked he looked forlorn. I don't think he was, mm -hmm. but it struck me, and I looked at him, and and I was, you know, I went over to talk to him, but that image stuck with me, and I realized uh, that the next year would be Ray's ninetieth, and I said, "There's no way in hell I'm going to let." That his birthday go by without some uh, big celebrations here in Los Angeles. And so I started working on the idea of having uh, the city honor him. And I got in touch with Eric Garcetti, now our mayor, at that time the president of uh, the city council, LA City Council, and um, basically was asking, do you think we can do something in, in 2010 for Ray? And he got, they got back to me and said, yes, but contact us after the first of the year. You know, get over the Christmas holidays and all yeah. that. Because uh, I think the Corwin's birthday may have been in September. In any case, when I got a hold of them, the recession had really hit hard. And the city had no money. But I got a hold of them anyway, and I said, uh, uh, look, I know the budget's tight in the city, but you can at least do what cities always do, which is to declare a day so-and-so's day. And I said, Ray Bradbury's too big for a day. I'd like a month, but I'll take a week. <laughs> and so Eric's people checked with Eric and then got back to me and said, you got your week. And then, and then I said, oh, what the hell? I've got a week. What am I going to do? And I started organizing events. Now, I did this um, not really to pat myself on the back, but I did this basically all by myself, uh, essentially because I hate committees and I wasn't going to involve anybody else but i involved institutions and let them take the ball for their things so we did a number of things one city council had a big ceremony declaring it ray bradbury week ray was there speakers spoke on his behalf we did um a screening of uh uh the wonderful ice cream suit oh yes with joe mantegna and the director student gordon and ray uh in a panel that i, I moderated that was at the uh, Great Central Library of Los Angeles in downtown L.A. I directed a, a, a stage reading of his one-act play, The Better Part of Wisdom, mm -hmm. and had in my cast James Cromwell from Babe and, and uh, um, that great film noir, L.A. Confidential, yeah. and Seamus Dever. I don't know if you got the TV series Castle over there. Yes, yes. He was the Irish cop that was part of the team. And a young actor named Kanata, and it was wonderful. Ray was there. We screened um, Fahrenheit 451, sponsored by Hugh Hefner and the Playboy Foundation. And we had Hugh Hefner and Ray on stage talking together, moderated by uh, Jeff uh, Boucher, who at the time was the head of Hero Complex of the LA Times, which was sort of the, the geek section <laughs> of their, <laughs> and the nerd section of their website. Um, and a few other things. We did some of his TV things at the Paley Center for television. Mm -hmm. And so I organized this, and of course I talked to Ray about it, and I talked to um, his daughters, especially uh, Z Bradbury, who kind of ran his affairs. And he said he loved it, but we, the family has to ask you one thing. You cannot inform people that Ray will definitely be at these because he, he can get very tired and didn't decide not to go. Mm -hmm. So I made it clear in all the publicity, you know, Mr. Bradbury hopes to attend everything, but it's subject to availability. Yeah. Well, he came to almost everything and uh, <laughs> got very, very tired that week, but he had <laughs> he had a grand time. He he saw how much this city loves him. 
he saw how much his fans love him and he was you know just he, he was in seventh heaven he really enjoyed himself and we you know we had a great time and at the wonderful ice cream suit we had a little ice cream social just before because you know that was his favorite food ice cream ah. <laughs> that's fantastic it that was an incredibly busy week um i i was there for a very brief period in fact i was there for his 90th birthday party which was held in a bookshop in glendale Mystery. glendale that's it yeah um and- we went up and looked at all the signatures on the walls. You and I were together doing yes, that. Yes, yes. Well, that's very well remembered of you. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, closed now. It's laid vacant for a long, long time. I wrote about it in Huffington Post as Ray Bradbury's favorite bookstore because at that time it was. And Malcolm and Christine, um, who ran the store, who would be lovely guests on this podcast, by the way, mm. were dear, dear friends of Ray's besides being booksellers. What I found, I I spent a very brief time with him, I think on about three occasions um, over the weekend that I was there. Um, And I found that although, yes, he was tired, he was really dedicated to seeing his fans. He didn't want to let them down. He loved seeing the fans. He loved talking to them, you know, and almost everyone would come up and say, you've been, uh, your books are my favorite. They changed my life. They would say, I've never read anything like it. And his, his answer would always be, you have very good taste. <laughs> and, every, and people loved it, absolutely loved it. Yeah, yeah. I, so that was a birthday party. If you had to sort of pick one event from that week, is, is there anyone that really stands out for you? It would be uh, the staged reading I did of um, Better Part of Wisdom, hmm. which is, uh, as a short story, it's part of his Irish stories, yeah. and uh, and uh, it was important because when I when I used to direct at the at the Writers Guild, I was a member of the Writers Guild at the time. We do these stage readings, and I really staged them. I would block them; they, they would still be on book when they did it. Mm. But it's uh, I went to Ray and I said I'd like to we, the Writers Guild would like to do one of your short plays or your plays. What which one would you want? He immediately said, "Better Part of Wisdom." So I said, great. And I had not read it yet. I immediately read the, he was going to send me the play script, but I immediately read the short story. And I don't, you, I'm sure are well aware that it's basically about love. It's basically has a homosexual theme, but the, um, the upshot of it was it, it doesn't matter who you love. It's, it's that you love, I suppose. It, it is a, I, I don't want to say sweet. It's just a wonderful play. Yeah. And the grandson is living in London with uh, with his uh, with his mate, his lover, or whatever. And it's just a wonderful short short play. And with um, James Cromwell playing the grandfather, it was just absolutely incredible. Mm. And he and Seamus both do wonderful Irish accents. Huh. And then uh, Jeff, the other actor, was is an American actor, but he did a perfect kind of London upper, you know, upper class, but not not phony uh, accent. Yeah, they, yeah. they were all wonderful. And Ray told them just before we went on, he said, this is the first time the play's ever been staged. <laughs> we dropped. Now, <laughs> I think that was true. Huh? Uh, I don't think that was true. I found out that from other people that the play has been staged before. But it didn't matter at that time. It just made us feel all, all the more. And then Ray had a great time afterwards because uh, James Cromwell was the son of the great Hollywood director... Um, John Cromwell, right? And Ray Ray was a huge fan of his films, so they talked a lot about uh, his his father. 
I, w- I wish I'd been able to see that. There's there's so many things <laughs> that took place during that week that I wish I'd been able to see. But I have a Ray Bradbury Week Facebook page. Mm. It's just Ray Bradbury Week. You can get on it with no problem. There are videos there. Now we have the video of the um, ceremony at the LA City Council mm-hmm. Hall. We have uh, he and Hugh Hefner that whole evening. And then for the play, we, we just have some select scenes because I promised I couldn't do the whole whole play. The agents wouldn't have given me the, the right to do that anyway. And it, it, it it's amateurish in the sense that a friend of mine just captured it from the audience. Yeah. But a few clips that gives you a feel for for how how much that play was and, and how much uh, Ray appreciated. And then a lot of photos of all the events, a lot of photos. So you can check that out and the, and the listeners can check that out. Ray Bradbury Week, very simple Facebook. I've browsed those photos many times. It's a, a, a fantastic resource and I'm really pleased that you put it together. And as I am with searching for Ray Bradbury, it's a slim volume, but it's it's a really heartfelt, um, personal search. I mean, that's the title of the book, Searching for, for Ray Bradbury. What I felt was that as an enthusiastic young child in Waukegan, so taken by uh, books such as uh, Journey to the Center of the Earth or 20,000 Leagues or The Time Machine and then Flash Gordon comic strips in the paper and Buck Rogers and those images, those mm. images. He's a very image, he was a very image-driven man and, and certainly an image-driven writer. That That's kind of where he gravitated when he was trying to become a writer. Plus he fell in love, fell in love, <laughs> well, maybe fell in fell in with uh, some science fiction writers in Los Angeles in, in that club and they mentored him and the places where he he uh, submitted stories first were you know weird tales or astonishing or different science fiction magazines so he he was I call him the first geek he was the first geek he yeah. went to the first science fiction convention as you know yeah. but he also uh, and I think it was Edmund Hamilton and um, and Lee Brackett that introduced him beyond science fiction to read Fitzgerald and Hemingway and, and the classics and 19th century literature. And he had a much, you know, he was an auto dictat, as you know, he, mm. he taught himself. So he had a wide ranging love of different kinds of, of literature and he just who was who he was. So except for that co-writing job or picking up the Lee Brackett um, book that, that he did when she got the big sleep assignment, um, he really didn't write classic you know science fiction of of any kind he he said to me he thought fahrenheit 451 was his only book that was could actually be called science fiction yeah. and I, quite frankly i'm not even sure about that but <laughs> you know not up to me to make that decision now this year is obviously the the bradbury centennial or centenary are, are there any events happening that you're involved with this year no and if any had been planned i think they probably would have been canceled because of yeah. covid there are people did approach me a couple of years ago about whether I was going to try to recreate Ray Bradbury week, but I just quite frankly didn't have the time and not sure I, I had the energy. Uh, the first Ray Bradbury week was there specifically to let him know how much he's loved. And he, he got the message, not that he didn't know it beforehand, but you know, it was, it was grand to have it. South Pasadena library, which was close to Ray. Someone talked to me about it when I was on a panel about Ray uh, late last year. But the library is closed, and uh, mm. as all libraries are uh, right now. 
So I don't know of anything specific. Uh, there'll certainly be a lot of online stuff like the recent one in Waukegan, I think, but I'm not involved in any of them. Now, I'm always curious about how people got started with Bradbury. Can you remember the first of his stories that you ever read? Martian Chronicles. Yeah. It was the fir first paragraph Rocket of Rocket Summer. Yeah. That was an incredible um, moment in my life because it was the first time I realized the prose in fiction could be more than just describing the moment or, or, or what I call uh, getting from point A to point B prose. It was poetic. It uh, had an image that immediately made you understand what was going on. It's totally fantastic, of course. No rocket's going to take off that close to a small town uh, in the winter and, you know, melt everything. But, Wow, what a metaphor. What a what, and it, and so I suddenly saw the power of literature. And so that that just that was the beginnings of I think the seeds of why I wanted to become a writer. Later I was very impressed uh, by W Somerset Mom, especially um of Human Bondage and Ian Fleming. I was a great James <laughs> Bond fan. Now, and and Fleming, I think it's starting to be recognized that he was pretty much a, a damn fine writer and a good stylist, although not in the, the mode of Ray. But again, he was a man who could describe things. And I, I've always loved his writing uh, beyond being, you know, a thriller. And, uh, and Mom was the first time I realized that in prose, you could create a place and people and make them seem so real and vital and atmospheric and put you right there. And, of course, it's all happening in your head, but then what isn't happening in your head? Mm -hmm. So the three of them were the, the, the spurs uh, to me to, uh, to eventually become a writer myself. Mm. And, and were you writing from a young age, or is it something that you, you turned to later? Yeah, I, I fooled around. I started writing some short stories. I, the, the, the other major thing that saved me is in my sophomore year in high school, I joined the drama uh, uh, club. And eventually uh, the, took drama in high school, and that that opened me up to the world of literature as well. And and Arthur Miller and Tennessee Williams. But by the time I got out of high school, I decided that I wasn't going to become an actor because I was still only five five and a quarter. Oh. And it, and I always thought actors had to be six foot. <laughs> you know? And my mother always claimed someday you're going to shoot up just like my brother Hugh. I never did. Uh, she lied to me. But in any case, I was I became more enamored with the words and the idea of authorship mm. that Death of a Salesman is owned by uh, Miller and that he was the author, therefore the authority. Yeah. And the same thing with books. So I started writing poetry in high school and short stories. I've never been really good at either of those. Uh, but later um, I did some journalism. I got kind of waylaid into the film industry for a, a bit over 20 years. Now, I don't know a huge amount about your film career, but I know that you worked with Chuck Jones and uh, Gary Kurtz as well. Gary Kurtz, uh, uh, who had produced Star Wars and American Graffiti and Empire Strikes Back. Um, am I right in thinking that um, it was Little Nemo in Slumberland that brought you and Bradbury and Gary Kurtz together? And... Am I right in thinking that the the animation work on that film was done in Japan? He's approached by the Japanese. He decides he wants to do Nemo. 
They mentioned Bradbury. He was a fan and a friend of Bradbury's. He said yes. And so Bradbury was on that film, and we worked for a year during development on that together. That film was eventually made, wasn't it? But it, it, it wasn't really Ray's script anymore by the time it was made. Um, it, it got very confusing because I was the head of the American team, and I gathered all, all the American animators of co-production. Uh, young animators that I found that I thought had uh, real talent, one being Roger Allers, who later went on to co-direct and write The Lion King. Oh, yes. Um, uh, we were trying to make the movie kind of in a Disney way where you just start doing inspirational artwork and doing the story. But we had a Japanese team, which that first year was headed up by uh, Miyazaki. But he, uh, quite frankly, didn't like us gaijin, didn't like the Americans too much. <laughs> and the twain just never met there uh, creatively, although we spent another year on it in Japan. But the Japanese didn't understand anything Ray was doing, which Gary had asked him to do the equivalent of inspirational art, write scenes, just write mm, scenes. Yeah. So no one was constructing a story. Now, it's very hard with that strip because it's just about Nemo falling asleep at night and going into this dreamland, and Windsor Bacay was an incredible draftsman, and they're beautiful, but there's no story material there. There's not really any yeah, depth yeah. of characters. And I left after two years because it was I was just wasting my time in Tokyo on that, and Gary left shortly after that. And and I didn't even know Ray had finished a screenplay because uh, Gary just had Ray pull back because the Japanese didn't like whatever he was doing. Mm. Later, Ray wrote me and said, do you have a copy of my Nemo script? I'm thinking of publishing it. <laughs> and I wrote, I said, Ray, I didn't even know you'd finished it. <laughs> he had a copy, but he's missing the last two pages. Yeah. yeah. Um, it it was found and it's been published but that was it just wasn't going to happen so the final film the japanese the head of the japanese company was was obsessed with getting this film made and he spent millions and millions and millions and it was finally made with you know talent that i wasn't wouldn't have been too happy to, to be thrilled with mm -hmm. it's a very kitty picture we were trying for something a bit more uh, adult or crossing all generations than that they, the American co-director they finally got was Bill Hertz, who was a very nice guy, yeah. but he'd spent the last 20, 25 years directing uh, TV commercials for Jay Ward, the, the man who, of course, produced the Rocky and Bullwinkle, yeah, Rocky yeah. the Squirrel uh, films. So it was kind of sad, but we, the, when we were there, we had a great time. Um, <laughs> and Ray used to come. We had offices in Hollywood, and Ray would come in to meet with all the animators just to kick over ideas. And when he would come in, to my office, he would bound in, opening the door, and bound in. He <laughs> never walked in, he bound in. And he'd always make an opening statement. He bounds in and says, people send me metaphors in the mail. Isn't that wonderful? <laughs> That's absolutely wonderful, Ray. Now, one day, the only one that I remember, he bounded in and said, I just came back from a writer's conference uh, with a big audience, and I told them, you don't have to read Saul Bellow. <laughs> and I was a little taken aback because I was at that moment reading The Adventures of Augie March. <laughs> <laughs> and I, well, what am I supposed to do? But, you know, <laughs> I continued to read the book because I like Saul Bellow. So. But he was, always, he was always just this font of gregariousness, enthusiasm. He loved 
as you know, he loved illustration. Yeah. Um, he was particularly smitten with one of our American uh, inspirational artists, um, Chris, uh, and I can't remember his last name, but he later did a book with with Ray with the same kind of artwork, the um, Ahmed. Oh, Ahmed and the Oblivion Machines. Yeah, 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 um, that's it. You know, I, unfortunately, in my Hollywood career, I worked on projects that never got finished at one point. Uh, I was partnered with, with Gary after that on a project that I, I created the idea and we sold it at one point. Mm -hmm. Then we got involved with um, Richard Zanuck and Richard Fleischer, who was the son of Max Fleischer. Yeah, yeah. We're going to do an animated Betty Boop feature. Oh, wow. At MGM. And so we developed the script. It was written by my partner at the time and developed by all of us, obviously, the way you do. It, we sold it to Alan Ladd Jr. at MGM. Yeah. And we have a meeting about it finally. And he read the script and he didn't understand animation and he didn't quite know what to do. And besides Richard Zanuck, the other producer was his wife, Lily Finney Zanuck, who had kind of a voice like this. <laughs> um, and uh, we're having a big meeting in Ladd's office at MGM. And he said, well, I've read it. You know, guys, what do you want me to do? And I just pop up and I said, green light it. And, and Dick Zanuck... The shock on his face. No one ever says that. But his wife, Lily, goes, Yes, laddie, laddie, green light it, green light it, green light it. <laughs> so Lad decided, well, uh, I think my partner said, You know, if you give it, let us keep us going enough to do a, um, a showreel. The whole film in storyboard will match the voice, we'll put the voices in there, we'll put some music soundtrack, and then you'll be able to see what the film is. So Lad um, approved that, and I called it a, I called it a chartreuse light. And we started doing that, and we we had uh, hired uh, Bernadette Peters to be Betty Boop. She had a father; it wasn't the Pops or whatever that was in the old Betty Boop cartoons. Mm -hmm. And um, it, it was it was a lovely story of her, her how she got to Hollywood and became a star from Bob. <laughs> and it was great; it was a good screenplay. Three months into it, we spend a million dollars, and Alan Ladd gets fired from MGM, and the new guy cancels the film. Oh. I had a whole studio set up. We yeah. had to shut everything down, and that was the end of it. But mm -hmm. a, about a year later, I got... Um, uh, that's when I wrote the, my first novel to be published. I wrote right after the Betty Boop. But a year later, we got picked up to um, produce the animation for Space Jam. Right. Now, that's, that's one that people will have heard of. <laughs> Well, no one in no other animation studio in Hollywood wanted to touch it. Really? Uh, well, it, this was a time when animation was hot. Yeah, in Hollywood. Yeah, yeah. So animators were not a dime a dozen anymore, where they had been maybe ten years before, hmm. and none of the studios wanted to do it. And the problem was, Michael Jordan, as you know, was the the lead, the yeah. flesh and blood lead. He was a big basketball star. Yeah, and he had a a small window of opportunity for the filming because he had to go back to play basketball. Mm -hmm. um, and Ivan Reitman was the executive producer and really, you know, the man really in charge. He had done Ghostbusters and what have you. Mm -hmm. And he, um, he finally uh, brought us into his office and he said, do you know how did we can get this produced? Because I have no idea. Warner Brothers says they can, it was a Warner Brothers film. They're too busy making this Camelot film and their TV division. We got some of their people over here, but I just don't trust them, blah, 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 whatever. And we had we had set up a certain system on Betty Boop, 
which used studios from around the world as sort of units. Mm-hmm. Now at Disney, you had units, animation units. You were under one roof. Well, you couldn't do that because there wasn't enough animators in Los Angeles anymore. Mm-hmm. So the guy we had who was uh, directing Betty Boop, my partner and I were producing, came up with the idea that you, there were these small animation studios, in, especially in Europe, that was almost always uh, led by a master animator, a real mm-hmm. talent. Yeah. You make them a unit, you make that person your directing animator, and you get them involved from day one. And that's what we were starting to do with Betty Boop. Well, that got canceled. So I just said to Ivan, yeah, I, I know how to do that. And so we got hired, and I set up an ad hoc animation studio international in three days. Wow. It took longer to negotiate contracts. But so we had two studios in London. Yeah. Uh, we had a studio in o- Ohio. Eventually, uh, Canadian studios and a studio in Texas and possibly a French studio. I can't remember. My partner and I left after um, 18 months on it because we had another, uh, this other deal at MGM mm. uh, that we were hoping to do, and that, that got canceled. Huh. So anyway, after Space Jam, that was, I said, I'm going to go do what I really want to do, which is write novels. And that's what I've done ever since. Was that partly because you've, you could feel more of a sense of accomplishment because you, you were in control of everything? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I had been writing all along the time in Hollywood. I'd finished one novel that that has never been published. I, I, I may do that if I go back and look at it and think it's worth it. Hmm. I play called Made on the Moon, which I have now uh, novelized and it's available as a novella. Um, and that play, in fact, uh, premiered at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival in 96. Oh, wow. The year's game came out. Yeah. So I was always writing. In fact, during Betty Boop in the morning, I started writing the novel that later became Traveling in Space and has been published. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's been my m- most successful novel. And in between um, Betty Boop going down and starting Space Jam, if we got the call from Ivan Reitman's office, I wrote a book called Blood is Pretty, which is a uh, satiric Hollywood thriller. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it it's satiric about Hollywood. It's also a thriller. It also, uh, my love of James Bond is, is wrapped up into it. Um, <laughs> and then after Space Jam, I wrote a sequel called Hollywood is an All-Volunteer Army. <laughs> but uh, that's, and the hero is a guy named, called The Fixer with two X's. Yes. He has no other name. He's just known as The Fixer. Yeah. And he fixes the problems of people in Hollywood, especially <laughs> the more desperate uh, horrible problems. <laughs> are, you, are you familiar with Ray's book, Graveyard for Lunatics? Absolutely. Graveyard for Lunatics always struck me as Ray's revenge on Hollywood. Was well, Graveyard the yes. second one? Yes, but, yes, it's the second one. That is a bit of revenge. Now, Ray once told me, he said, the great thing about writing is you can kill your enemy. <laughs> God knows I did that in my two fixer novels. <laughs> Well, what's the first of the uh, of the mysteries? Um, that is Death is a Lonely Business. That book, which I read within the last two years, I think. Mm-hmm. I read the second one first. It has the most incredible tone, feeling, atmosphere, something about it. I can't put my finger on it, but, but I just thought it's an amazing book. I truly recommend that to all the listeners. Um, and eventually, third one, I think, is um, Why Don't We Kill Constance or something like that. Yeah. I, I have to get to yet. Yeah. But the, that first one, it, it just there's something. 
And it's so much about the young Ray as he was just starting out as a writer. Um, now, whether it's an accurate portrait, portrait, I don't know, but it's certainly probably accurate as to his memory and feelings of those days. It, it is very atmospheric. Um, and, it, and it was his, in a way, it was his comeback work because most people had considered that Bradbury was finished by about 1980. And then in, I think in 85 is when Death is a Lonely Business comes out. And it, it's a, a completely fresh work. It, you it can see the old Bradbury is in there, but it's a very fresh take um, on his subject. So it's like a comeback. Fantastic. Um, if you were stuck on a desert island and you could only have one piece of Bradbury writing with you, what would you choose? Uh, it would have to be Martian Chronicles. Mm-hmm. Not only because of what it meant to me when I first read it, but the the different stories, the different tones would come from the fact that, of course, they were never meant necessarily to be grouped. Uh, but there's so many surprises there, uh, um, such as the story of the man who's realized everybody has left Mars and he's all alone and the telephone rings. Yeah. And there's a woman at the other end and he thought, oh, it was like, oh, it's going to be Adam and Eve on Mars. Mm -hmm. And when they finally meet, she's a totally disgusting person. <laughs> And it's the last thing he wants to do is spend his life, so he hightails it out there. I just thought that was the funniest, most unique uh, way, non-sentimental, obviously. And what was Ray thinking at the time? Who was he thinking about? I don't know. <laughs> and then the, you know, the 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 other ones and the his his um, reflecting the uh, history and exploring and conquering and bringing disease to the natives and what have you. Mm. He was projecting all that. He he knew that history and the imagery and the and, and the final imagery of uh, of uh, you know the is that the million year picnic? Yes. The, the yeah. final wrap up. Yeah. So he had sort of a I wouldn't say a love-hate relationship with space exploration. Certainly towards the end it was all cheerleading because mm. he was excited about it. Yeah. But he was also worried about it, and he knew how, how dangerous and tough it would be. In your own um, novel writing, do you, do you find that you are influenced by Bradbury, either in choice of subject matter or um, style choices or anything like that? Not really in any of those things, but certainly in uh, the inspiration is Ray's prose, use of language, never wanting to describe something in a normal, mundane, or cliche way. Mm -hmm. He reached, as you know, he's, he's master of metaphor. He's great at, at connecting things and making the language poetic. Not that, every, you know, some lines just need to be mundane. You know, if the person walks to the door, maybe there's nothing terribly poetic about it. But most of his writing will surprise you with, with his descriptions and, and what he does. So, I've spent my career trying to do the same thing. Um, mm. I don't want to go for the easy cliche or the easy way to describe something, what I call sort of off-the-shelf sentences and what have you. I try to do my best. Ray has been accused on occasion of writing purple prose. Well, you know, I think that's in the eye of the beholder, isn't it? Yeah. If you don't like purple, you know, you're going to wear <laughs> black and white or something. But uh, Ray wrote from the guts. He also was a... Um, improvisational writer and an instinctual writer as you know he didn't didn't believe you could teach someone how to write mm. he didn't believe in writing courses 
uh, he wrote from the heart, he wrote from the gut, he wrote from the head, whatever. Um, and I've tried to maintain that same uh, approach towards my work. Hmm. Um, some of my work can be labeled science fiction as some of his, but we're very much alike in the sense that I think what Ray did was use the, I hate this word tropes that, that everybody uses, although I found out today it's actually a 17th century word. So I guess, okay. <laughs> but the tropes or the mezzanine or the, the landscapes and props of science fiction that I th think both he and I fell in love with almost more through the images. Yeah. Like a, covers from Analog or Amazing Stories magazine than, than the ideas. Mm -hmm. So my traveling in space is a satire taken off from uh, first contact novels because I always found a lot of first contact novels were either they were aliens coming to destroy us and or eat us or take our women uh, <laughs> or our water. They never take our men. I don't know if you've noticed that. <laughs> or there are aliens that come down to uplift us into angelhood and make us better. My, uh, my first contact novel is written from the point of view of the aliens who stumble upon Earth, which is surprising in, it, in and of itself. But more surprising is they were of the opinion that they were the only life in the universe. Right. And then they find this other planet with life on it. So they have to stop and and explore because they're, they're, it's a ship of scientists. It's a ship of uh, knowledge farmers. They are not warriors by any stretch of the imagination. Mm -hmm. They need to know, you know, they need to find out things. So at this point, what they have to find out is who are these people and what's their life like. So I call it uh, 21st century Gulliver's Travels and we are the right. little fusions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um we're nearly out of time, so uh, just as, as one last question, if our listeners would like to find out more about your work, where would be a, a good place for them to, to look? I'm definitely on Facebook, and uh, I have a blog, theemotionalrationalist.blogspot.com. But if you Google my three names, Stephen Paul Leva, L-E-I-V-A, Google will tell you how to get to all those things, plus videos of me reading from my work and... Uh, and uh, interviews I've done in the past. Um, Steve, thank you tremendously for joining me today. Thank you very much. My thanks to Stephen Paul Laver for joining me today. I'll put links to Steve's blog and to his uh, Ray Bradbury Week Facebook page on my own website, which is bradburymedia.co.uk. And please join me next week for another episode of Bradbury 100, where I'll be joined by Jason Orkerman, the Managing Director of the Centre for Ray Bradbury Studies. Bradbury 100 is presented and produced by Phil Nichols in collaboration with the Centre for Ray Bradbury Studies. For more information, head to bradburymedia.co.uk. Music is provided by Purple Planet at purpleplanet.com Don't forget to check out my other podcast Science Fiction 101 at 101sf.blogspot.com and head over to YouTube to find my Bradbury 101 series in which I look at Ray's books and movies. <laughs>